right now we are in a day and age of cancel culture. I, I don't know any other term for it, where people are terrified now to speak up, to say something that is goes against the grain, to say, well, you know, I, I don't know if I believe in this fully, or I don't, you know, I don't understand this. Can you explain? Like people are afraid to even ask questions and we have to stay curious about one another. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What gets you up in the morning? What drives your decisions? What do you stand for? No idea? Not even sure where to start? I use my values to guide my life and career. It's the basis of how I've built boundaries for myself and stuck to them. Are you ready to dig into what matters to you? Go to thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet. That's thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet to get to your core values and take action on what matters most. Welcome to this week's episode of the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm really excited for you to hear my conversation with Kareth Foster. Kareth is a diversity engagement specialist and creator of the groundbreaking Inversity Methodology and other signature programs. These new conversations are revolutionizing the way we address issues of diversity and leadership. As a speaker, humorist, TV and radio personality, author, entrepreneur, wife and mother, Kareth is a positive force of change with her sense of duty, service, along with her riotous sense of humor. In my conversation with Kareth, we learned about her experience and her career journey working in broadcast journalism and multiple platforms and the pivotal moments that guided her career. We talked about how she is disrupting how organizations approach diversity, equity, and inclusion by using humor to create neutral spaces to learn about diversity and inclusion at work instead of feeling like you are on the offense or defense. Kareth shared how to build belonging from the organizational and individual perspective. We also talked about her book, You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy, and her upcoming book. I know you'll get a lot out of this conversation, including a laugh and a perspective shift on this very important topic. Let's get started. Well, I want to welcome you to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. Thank you so, so much for joining us here today. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Well, I am just so excited that we were connected. Just lots of things. Um, we just did a pre-conversation and I cannot wait to get into to our conversation today. But before we do, do you mind giving us a little bit more about your, your background, your life and career? I just want to learn more about you. Absolutely. So, you know, my name is Kareth Foster, which is kind of unique. I 
did not like it as a child because people thought my name was Karen and I had a speech impediment. So it was a lot of cute little brown girls. Shame about that list. Um, I realize now the power in having a different name. I realize now so much the power in having grown up differently. I, I was raised in Plano, Texas, which at the time was not very diverse. Um, we, in fact, were one of very few Black families in a several mile radius. I was always the only Black child or person of color in my classes. That was my normal. And that doesn't make it bad or wrong. It just was. And, you know, that we all come from this place of normal, you know, whether it was an extremely diverse place in New York City that you happen to grow up in or you're in Iowa. And what I've learned is that prism of normal shapes so much of how we see the world until we're introduced to something new. And I tried to get to something new. I went to school in Missouri. I went to Stevens College, the second oldest women's college in the country. I studied abroad at Oxford University. And I got a degree in broadcast journalism because I was going to be the next Connie Chung, the next Oprah, Katie Couric. Like I was going to be this beacon of light and truth. And I was fortunate enough to get a job right out of school at uh, The View network television, Barbara Walters, you know, big time. And while I was there, after about the first year or so became my Devil Wears Prada situation. I don't know if you remember that line that multiple actors would say, a million girls would kill for this job. Why are you miserable? Uh, and that was me. That was me. And it was a dream job in the sense of like, it was a stepping stone to do other really amazing things in the realm of what I thought I was supposed to be in. I did learn how to produce, how to write, how to book. Like I, and to this day, 75% of my colleagues I'm still connected with mm -hmm. in some really healthy, wonderful way. So it wasn't a loss, but it wasn't what I was supposed to be doing. I needed a creative outlet. And the universe always listens when you say something like that. So while I'm in the ladies lounge, we shared studio space with the soap opera, all my children, a young woman who was an intern there stops me in the bathroom and says, hey, can you watch me do a set? Now, I always tell people, if anyone stops you in a New York City bathroom and asks you to watch them do something, you run. <laughs> but I was intrigued. I'm like, what's a set? What do you do? What are you talking about? And she proceeded to do six, seven minutes of stand up comedy. Oh, wow. And I was Lord. I'm like, how did you learn to do that? Where did, how did you, how did you, because I've always loved comedy. It was always, you know, I was always a fan of it. I would sneak and stay up late when I was little to watch who was going to be the comedian on the tonight show. Never in a million years did I think I would do it because I wasn't the class clown. I was the straight A goody two shoes student, you know, vice president of the Latin club. Okay. <laughs> Dork and cool kids clothing. <laughs> <laughs> But this whole idea of doing stand-up intrigued me. And I said, you think I could take a class? Because that's what she said she'd done. She goes, actually, you might be able to take my place because I, I can't do it. So I was making no money. Um, I went into my savings account and spent $300 to treat myself for my birthday to a stand-up comedy class. And as I say, that was kind of the beginning of the end. Wow. And when I found stand-up, I feel, I feel like I found what was missing in the journalism side of things, you know, the ability to be completely authentic, to tell the truth, the whole truth, mm -hmm. to be yourself. And what I realized now, of course, hindsight is always 2020, but what an incredible tool humor is and comedy in connecting people. And I saw that from the get-go. And that's what I loved about it because if you can get people to laugh at something, you can get them to 
understand, you know, when we spoke about this a little bit in the pre-interview, the connection to one another, to life, to all the things that we think separate and divide us. So while I was pursuing stand-up, my mother's like, please get some health insurance. (laughs) (laughs) So I started temping at Estee Lauder and that quickly turned into a permanent human resources position. Again, not where I saw my life going or what I was wanting to do, but it ended up being another spoke in this amazing wheel of my career path where I got to be in corporate America. I got, I was working, I was basically the second assistant to the senior VP of global HR for some time. Uh, Then I took over tuition reimbursement. I worked with a lot of executive directors, a lot of presidents of organizations, vice presidents. So I really got a good behind the scenes look of of what what happens in a, you know, fortune 500 organization uh, with human resources, with people, with issues that come up. I left to start a production company that lasted about 20 minutes. And I get a call saying, hey, Kara, if you're interested in a radio TV opportunity, because I was still pursuing stand-up. Like, it was like I had a double life. By day, I was, you know, button up corporate America. By night, I was out on the town in the streets of Manhattan doing stand-up comedy and dive bars and major comedy clubs. And uh, I get this call. And I said, of course, I'm interested in a radio TV opportunity. You know, what what comic wouldn't be? Oh, by the way, it's with Don Imus. Now, I don't know if that name rings a bell, but he was the original shock jock. I mean, he predated Howard Stern. He was the guy who really transformed talk radio. And he was known for being, you know, really outrageous, really counterculture and getting himself in trouble. And the trouble he got into in April of 2007 was with regard to a very disparaging remark he made about the Rutgers women's basketball team. And I remember hearing it. I remember when it blew up on the news. I remember thinking I should have been there. I should have been there to like have this conversation with him. Well, talk about putting something out to the universe and manifesting. Six months later, I get this call and I was torn. I was torn. I talk about this in the the TED talk that I've, I've given you know, do I join forces with one of the most reviled men in media at the time? Or do I seize this as an opportunity to be a voice where there is a deficit, you know, to be a public figure, a Black woman who can dispel the stereotypes, who can have a a, a conversation about race and racism and you know, all the things they were really wanting to do. Now, it was under the guise of diversifying the staff. And I'm not stupid. Like I knew I was being used and I was using him. I mean, there's probably a more polite way to say that, but that's the real truth, right? Like they needed someone to help him repair his reputation. And this was going to be a great opportunity. So I thought for me to take my broadcasting career and my comedy to the next level. Um, I call that my tale of two cities. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times because I, it was a dream job. I mean, it was a dream job. I was on national radio and TV. The only problem is I was working with a very damaged person. I was working with a drug addict and an alcoholic who, while he was no longer taking or using or drinking, had never sought recovery. So we never knew who we were going to get on a day-to-day basis. The amazing Marconi award-winning creative genius or a 14-year-old bipolar boy. And my cortisol levels were through the roof. I was there for two of the three years of my contract. Um, It got to the point where the bullying and the abuse was so much that even fans of the show would write me 
and ask, is he really that mean to you? Cause it's not funny anymore. Like it got bad, like to the point where having worked in HR, I'm like, where is HR? <laughs> like there's yeah. no, there's, there's no help for me. And I, I really got an insight into how abusive relationships work, both personally and professionally, because I'd never experienced it before. And I don't think if I had, I would have believed how bad it can be and get. So saving grace was I was able to get out of my contract early. I remember thinking, I'm going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> I'm either going to Bellevue or I'm going to Bali. And since I had the money and the time, I'm like, if I'm spending that much money, I'm going someplace pretty. So I went to Bali <laughs> and I got myself back. And while I was there, I had a lot of revelations. And one of which was being put on the path to understand my value and worth. And I realized that, you know, there's so many of us, women, especially men too, who were, it just may not have ever been fully ingrained, right? You may have been told what a great person you are, what a great student, but after you kind of got out into the real world, you, you didn't believe it anymore. And so I was able to, to get on a course to get back to that. And I realized also that there was a, a tie-in to what was happening in the world of diversity. You know, I was brought in to have this national conversation and it made me really look a little deeper behind the curtain. Like we've been doing this for 40, 50 years, like since the civil rights movement, why does it feel like two steps forward, 10 steps back? And that honest to goodness is part of the, the catalyst that set me on this path. There was another incident coincidentally regarding a Rutgers University student, a young man by the name of Tyler Clemente took his life by jumping off the George Washington Bridge. This happened in 2010. And I remember just being heartbroken because as an artist, as someone who lived in New York, I my friends run the gamut from transgender to, you know, I know people who started the Tea Party in Texas. My friends are my friends because of who they are, not what they are or what they do. And I just remember thinking nobody should feel that alone for whatever it is they think makes them different for whatever it is they think makes them an outlier. And so I started a program initially called Stereotyped 101. And I remember thinking, well, what, what can I, what can I do? How can I help? All I have is comedy. How's that going to help save the world? But I thought, you know what? Comedy can bring people together. And so I started using it and incorporating it into programming that I would take to colleges and universities. And it got so much attention that people were like, do you do this for corporations too? And I said, well, I certainly can. There's no reason not to. And, and that was the beginning of what is now Inversity and Inversity Solutions. Oh my goodness. I love the path. I love all these pivotal moments that you shared and realizing that those were pivotal moments, like in the moment, big stages big platforms and you were in them. But I like to say, just because you can do the job, do you have to do the job? <laughs> um, Like your devil wears Prado example, like, no, you don't have to, yeah. you absolutely don't have to. And if it doesn't feel right, it is probably not right. But those are really pivotal moments to find out what is right. Sometimes in the discomfort is where yeah. we find the most clarity. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I wrote a book and I know we'll talk about that later, but I, I do talk about not getting caught up in comfortable yeah. because it's really, I mean, who doesn't want to be comfortable? <laughs> and I'm not talking about the, you know, cozy fire with a blanket and some hot chocolate and a great book. Like that's, 
hands down a winner. But sometimes we get so caught up in, again, this prism of normal, what's normal for us, but it's really uncomfortable and it's not right. But we get too, too petrified to, to, to make a move, to leave. And it's so important because your, your, your body will tell you, your soul will tell you, your heart will tell you when it's not right. And you have to listen. That's the courage is to listen. Right. And that is just so hard because sometimes it feels so all or nothing in some of these situations. But on the other side of that important decision is usually that path that you found in lots of different ways. Um, So can you tell me a a bit more about inversity? I love the premise. I'm like reading all the things. Um, Can you talk about inversity versus diversity? And how do you how do you think about it? I love words. I think that maybe the comic in me, the writer in me, I love words. I love word play. I love, you know, sometimes even coming up with our own definitions for things and puns. And again, I, I really was looking at diversity as a whole. Like why, what is the roadblock here? Why are we not making the progress we should be? And looking at the word diversity, right? Even breaking it down. I I said I was vice president of the Latin club, right? (laughs) D-I-V is the prefix, right? Think of all the words that start with that. Divide, division, divorce. And yet we're using the term diversity to try to bring, it's literally right in front of us. (laughs) You know, but it's like a four, we can't, the forest for the trees scenario. So I'm like, there are, good parts of diversity of 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 the the idea behind it but the way we've been practicing it it really is almost a bit of a lie it's a little bit deceptive and there's some disillusionment here and there's distraction because what we're doing is we're focusing on all the things that make us different in the name of bringing us together and we're shocked it's not working <laughs> so i decided well what if we flip the switch right? Still honor, acknowledge, respect all of the things that make us up, our identity, our background, our heritage, expand the definition of diversity because traditional DEI, it's about ethnicity. It's about sexuality. It's about gender. There's so much more to us than that. We are multifaceted. We are not monoliths, right? So let's broaden the idea of what and definition of what true diversity really is. And let's shift the focus from what it is that separates and divides us to what it is we have in common, because we do have more in common than we don't. How can we be truly inclusive of one another? Not saying, well, you can't say that because you haven't had that experience. You can't be part of this conversation. You don't have a voice because you don't know what it's like. That shuts everything and everyone down, right? And lastly, and what I think is really powerful and potent is being introspective, right? Going inside to understand your value and worth so that you can see it in someone else. We've been trying this for so long by working from the outside in. That's not working. We have to work from the inside out. That's the only way you're ever going to make change. It's the only way you make change when you're looking to change your body, when you're looking to affect your health. It has to start from what you're putting inside and what you're feeling inside And then it shows outwardly. So that was the idea and the impetus behind the term, the word, the philosophy of adversity. And, you know, we have seven principles, but our our main goal is to get people to care 
And CARE is an acronym for developing and enhancing conscious empathy, active listening, responsible reactions, and environmental awareness. And when we can care about other people and care about ourselves, that's when we're on the right track to have healthy communication, to have healthy relationships, to create these spaces that we've been talking about for so long of psychological safety, true psychological safety, and and inclusion and belonging. So as you work now with organizations and universities, some companies are in obviously different paths or points in their diversity, equity, and inclusion journey. Where do you find an organization or the leaders within an organization are really ready to make some of these big changes or even small changes, but they're open and willing to learn in a different way? Um, what have you found that has worked? Like, how do they, how do you know that it's going to impact that organization? Because I, you know, from my perspective, as I go and do culture work, just broad culture work at organizations, sometimes they think they're ready. They're not ready. Mm. Right? Our, mm-hmm. our HR mm-hmm. backgrounds can tell us, you know, oh, I need this. Well, really, before you need that, you kind of need this other thing too. So tell me more about what is, it look like to be either a leader in these organizations or the state of the culture of some of these companies that are doing this work and are, you know, really willing to, to create kind of changes at the individual and cultural level within their organizations? That is an excellent question because it runs a gamut. You know, there are so many people who post 2020, post George Floyd were in a, a, a very reactionary state, Right. And so a lot of people are like, well, we got to do something. You know, we don't want to look bad. We don't want to fall behind. For some people, it was for optics. Mm-hmm. For some people, it was sincere. But for most people, they they just, they didn't know what to do. They didn't know what to do. It was the first time they come face to face with it. And I, I often use the example, there's a, a really great movie about quantum physics called What the Bleep Do We Know? And there's a scene in the film where they talk about when Columbus arrived in the Americas and the indigenous people, they couldn't see the ships because it was so far beyond their realm of comprehension that, you know, it wasn't until the chief who had more capabilities to an insight was like, no, this is what's happening. I mean, they saw literally the ripples on the waves but they couldn't see the ships. It wasn't until they started seeing people walk on the wall, like come out of the water that they could see it. And I feel like that's what happened with so many people with regard to the whole diversity space. Like, okay, we have to have these conversations now. I didn't realize what was going on behind the scenes, how people were feeling, how we were treating others, the lack of attention to some things. And, and earlier, you know, you and I, the word you use, and it's one of the words that I love is awareness. So much of this is about creating awareness and some people are more aware than others, right? And I think even before you want to jump into conversations about unconscious bias because, or implicit bias, there are literally over a hundred plus. I mean, I think it's, you know, they're tallying up, even as we're speaking, they're adding new versions (laughs) and that's all fine and good. And I'm not saying that that's not something to, to know and have, you know, in, in your knowledge bank, but before anything, you have to have awareness, of why you think the way you do, of, you know, the community around you. I I cannot tell you how many times I've been to a diversity workshop 
And it's been a person where one of them just the example was it was a white guy, which is fine. Like, I don't think white guys shouldn't be able to talk about diversity. They should. But when he was questioning the audience, there was a young black woman that he, you know, kind of asked, tell me about a time when you've had, you know, to deal with racism. And she's like, actually, I I really haven't. (laughs) He's like, no, you have to. Like you have. And it's like he was just so unaware that not everybody's had the same experience. So with regard to going into organizations, people have to be ready to work on themselves. It's like a therapist trying to help other people and not getting help for themselves. People also have to understand that this is not an overnight scenario. And I think that that was that was the sell from a lot of DEI experts. You bring me in. I'm going to have this great keynote. I'm going to do this workshop. We're going to do this training and all, all the problems will be solved. No, that's ridiculous. It didn't happen overnight. It's not going to change overnight. But that also doesn't mean it has to be some long, drawn out, painful experience where we're wagging our fingers in people's faces and shaming and playing the blame game because that's exhausting. And that is where I do find a lot of people, a lot of my clients, they're DEI'd out. They have some form of PTSD because of bad DEI because there is a lot of toxic DEI out there. And this may not be a popular opinion because it's a multi-billion dollar industry. But just because it makes money doesn't mean it's good. Oh my goodness. Can we say that again? Oh, wow. I could not agree more. The leadership content, DEI content, just because it is making money for someone does not make it good content. Uh, I love it. I could not give you more like likes. I feel the hearts coming up through the screen. (laughs) They're coming through. They're coming through. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I'm uh, what I feel like I'm doing is a little bit of a disruption. Not a little bit. It is. It's a disruption. But it's time. It's time. Because I can no longer sit back and see charlatans kind of taking hold. I can't see people just doing it to pat themselves on the back to feel better about who they are, to say, we did it. So now, you know, our hands are are clean. We're good. No, this this is about culture. This is about belonging, but it's also about redefining so much, right? Like the E in DEI, equity. That is such a joke. And the reason I say that is because people don't even know how to define it. There are five different definitions of what it actually really means. People, you know, is it equanimity? Is it equality? Is it equity? And what what does that even mean? And we go round and round and round with this conversation and it still isn't solving any problems. It's it's chatterbait. And the inclusion, well, it's only real inclusion if everybody gets to be part of the conversation. You can't say, well, you're a straight white guy, so you're evil and you're not part of this, right? Or you're the token marginalized group person, so you have the floor and you have to be put on the spot to share all of your bad experiences and to be the martyr and the example. That's not right either. This isn't about victims and villains, and yet it's been it's been set up that way. And it's time to time to break that mold. It is. It is. And I tell me how can you give me an example of how you bring in humor and you're disrupting some of these regular conversations, these probably not great conversations we've been having on some of these topics. What does that look like? What is that participant experience like? How does that feel? Well, it feels great. (laughs) And it's so different. It's such a a a transition from what I think people have been used to right which is that being lectured at and talked to and 
and and told you know either again you're a victim you're a villain what again i gained from doing comedy is learning the skills of a master communicator in the sense of i travel from washington state to washington dc and what i know is if you were trying to convey an idea a message a philosophy a concept to get the reaction you want understanding comprehension laughter you have to meet people where they are You cannot talk over their heads and you cannot talk down to them. And that's challenging because not everybody has the awareness to be able to do that effectively. What humor does, why it is so powerful on multi-levels, because psychologically, physiologically, it does things to our bodies. It kicks off the endorphins, the dopamine, the serotonin, but there's also something very cathartic in laughter. There's something very healing and laughter. One of the most validating experiences I ever had just doing stand-up was a woman came up to my friends and I after a show. It was an all-female lineup, which was kind of cool because that doesn't happen often. Yeah. It was a private theater in New Jersey. And, you know, people have been coming up, you know, all throughout the evening and say, oh, you were great. So funny. You know, we're getting, you know, soaking up the accolades. But this woman makes a beeline for us. And the first words out of her mouth completely caught us off guard. She said, my son was killed six months ago. We were not expecting that. Then she said, tonight was the first time I laughed. Mm. That to me was the best payment I could have ever received. Mm -hmm. But it was also confirmation in the gift that we give others when we can bring humor to a situation. And, you know, I think there is a bias that people have about comedy. Oh, it's, you know, people talking about their private parts in front of a brick wall. That's some comedy. That's a version, (laughs) right? There's clean comedy, there's corporate comedy, which is, of course, what I use. But the idea is to use humor in a way to talk about things that are uncomfortable, to bring light to the truth and catch the light on the shadows that are there that we don't always want to touch base on. But it's real. And people appreciate that so much because there's so much talking in circles. There's so much talking around the issue. Um, because right now we are in a day and age of cancel culture. I, I don't know any other term for it, where people are terrified now to speak up, to say something that is goes against the grain, to say, well, you know, I, I don't know if I believe in this fully, or I don't, you know, I don't understand this. Can you explain? Like, people are afraid to even ask questions, and we have to stay curious about one another. So humor allows for that curiosity. It allows for an openness and it allows for people to just take a step back and be in a neutral space, not on the offense, not on the defense, but just be there to receive information, be there to be open to the aha moments and the epiphanies. And so I do bring stand up a little bit into the corporate experience and I have jokes and I have, you know, visual um, components and I share a lot about my personal life and story and journey because so much of that is universal as well. You know, we're, we think we're just in this by ourselves. You know, we, we have this, this misnomer that because we wake up in our body and we only are experiencing things through our lens that we're doing it by ourselves. And the reality is we're not. And that's, I think one of the biggest messages that I can deliver when I go into a a corporate setting, because, you know, we have these, these, the hierarchies, right? When you're especially, you know, I deal with a lot of CEOs and they've kind of been put in this position. So they also, you know, they start to believe it too. Like I'm separate from everyone else. And then there are people who 
are under them who also think that there is this division aspect too, but we're really human beings having a human experience. Actually, we're spiritual beings having a human experience and to be able to tap into that in a, in a loving way and a compassionate way, but put it into a business setting. That's the magic of what I get to do. Yeah, it does. The way that you described using humor to not be on the offense or the defense that really resonated with me it because that's how it can feel in those rooms when you're talking about these things. And people are afraid, especially at work, especially in those rooms or those virtual rooms to your point to ask the question. Um, because if I ask that question, what if it's the wrong question? And then I'm at work and what do people think? And like, I want to do it right. But if I try, then I could get canceled and canceled at work could be fired and all the things. Right. And so I love that it, um, that you create a space that's neutral and that's, that starts with the the leader, the person, right? Yeah. When we do that, we open the floodgates for, for learning, yeah. for knowledge, right? For community. And that's, that's what really the idea is behind this work. That's what it's supposed to be. That's what belonging really is. And I think, you know, there, there's so many misnomers, right? That, and things that need correcting, but the idea behind belonging is that it's not a one-way street. Like, it's not just about a company creating the space of belonging. Like as a person, as an individual, you have to show up to want to belong too, to do what you can to, to, to feed into that. And that doesn't mean giving up anything about yourself, but it does mean making an effort. Yeah, absolutely. The company culture, it's not separate from the people that are in it, right? So we all make up part of it, all of these individuals that hopefully have some alignment and values um, that hopefully have leaders that are acting in accountability with those values and principles and all those things. Otherwise, you get some of those toxic cultures that you've um, that you mentioned earlier through your experience. So that is not uncommon, but just this idea that you are part of the whole. So you are that individual, but you are part of the whole thing that makes this whole place. My award-winning book, Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want, is now available in audiobook. Since the book released just last year, the biggest question that I've gotten from readers is, is it available in audiobook? In this book, you'll get to hear my most pivotal career stories and some of the successes of my clients as you learn about the Values First framework and how you can take action on your life and career. The audiobook is narrated by me. So if you love this podcast, you'll love the audiobook. Values First, How Knowing Your Core Beliefs Can Get You the Life and Career You Want is now available on Audible and iTunes. Well, I want to learn more about, um, you told me that you're, you're writing another book. So tell me more <laughs> about that. I am. So my first book is called, You Can Be Perfect or You Can Be Happy. Spoiler alert. There is no such thing as perfection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and ironically, it's what we strive for. Right. And, you know, I remember when I was, had the idea for the book, I, one of the things that happened was an experience with my daughter when she was first born. 
And it was one of, it was like one of those you know, commercials. You had one job, you know, your one job is to keep this child alive and you almost failed. And I beat myself up mercilessly until I had a friend who came to visit me and gave me some love. She's like, look, Kareth, you can be happy or you can be perfect. I choose happy. And while, you know, a chorus of angels should have started singing and the skies should have, you know, it was like, oh, that's a nice thing for my friend to say to comfort me. But it marinated for many years. And I thought, I juxtaposed it. You can be perfect or you can be happy. And how much of my life I'd spent trying to be perfect, the perfect daughter, the perfect friend, the perfect student, the perfect girlfriend, the perfect employee. The per- and it's like, when does, when does that stop? And what is it costing me? Because when am I ever going to reach perfection? Never. Because as soon as you catch that golden carrot, guess what? Bigger one comes out 10 seconds later. There's always another level to it. Always. 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 Yeah. It's like dating in New York. <laughs> I don't know anybody gets <laughs> married in New York City. <laughs> um, and this idea of like happiness, you know, happiness is a choice. It is. Now, it's as individual as we are. And what made us happy five years ago may not make us happy today. And what makes us happy today may not do anything for us in 10 years. But it is a choice. Now, there's a caveat to that as well. And that is that it's not a constant. And we are in a society and in a world, especially Western world, where we think we're supposed to be happy all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we're not, something's wrong with us. Yeah. I mean, what am I going to post about, Kareth, if I can't post those things, right? (laughs) Exactly. And so, you know, look, it is okay to not want to get out of bed for a day, for a weekend, three weeks, you should probably talk to someone, you know, but it's, it's okay. It's called life. Literally, it's called life. It's, it's it's like, you know, one of the examples I share is, have you ever seen like, you know, an EKG, a heart monitor, right? Whether your own or on a movie, TV, it, it goes up and down, right? That, that's life. It goes up and down. And when you've got those ups, those highs, you enjoy the hell out of them. You embrace it for all that it is. And when you are down, you understand that that too is temporary. That's not forever. The only time we are ever in trouble, just like with an EKG and in life, is when we have that straight line and we're doing nothing. You cannot be stagnant. You cannot stay in that place. That will kill you. It will kill your spirit. So that was my first book. The second book is, uh, I believe it's going to be called The Inversity Solution. Not 100% on the, the subtitle yet, but I garnered a lot of attention from the New York Times article. I was featured in uh, Mother's Day weekend, Sunday business section uh, in 2023. uh, And I had some publishers reach out and were like, you ever thought about writing a book on this? I said, well, as a matter of fact, I have been. So um, hopefully we will have some news on that in the near future uh, as to, you know, who I'm going with and, you know, some potential dates. And I'll come back on and talk about that. I love it. I'd love to have you. Congratulations on um, on all of it. I think it's just so well-deserved and it's such an important conversation that we all need to have. So how do we get in touch with you? What is the best way to stay in contact, to learn about when this book is coming out, to reach out to you and bring you into your or- our organizations, all that good stuff? Sure. So my website is the same name as my company, Inversity Solutions, and that's I-N-V-E-R-S-I-T-Y solutions with an S dot com. Uh, Autocorrect will try to make you say in university solution. No, (laughs) (laughs) Inversity Solutions. And again, my name is Kareth Foster, K-A-R-I-T-H. 
all you have to do really is Google Keras, quite honestly. Uh, not too many of us in the world. And um, yeah, I, I have an amazing team. We get back, you know, pretty immediately. And I I love what I do. Like I I feel like I've married my passion and my purpose. Mm-hmm. And to bring joy and light and love to the world when we are in such a dark place, it's amazing. And I feel so blessed. Well, I am, Kareth, I am just so happy that we were introduced to each other and that that we were able to share this space today. I know this is going to be the first of many conversations I hope to have with you, and we'll have you back on the podcast, and we're in the same area, so we might even be able to grab a coffee, too. I so think we're going to be doing that. I think, I think maybe. I think maybe. Yes. we're going to make it happen. (laughs) Well, again, thank you so much for sharing your thought leadership. And we'll put all of the ways to get in touch with you in our show notes. And I hope you have just the great rest of your day. And thank you again so much for being here with us. Thank you, Laura. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care.